Here we go again. The crown is a symbol of permanence. It's something you are, not what you do. Some portion of our natural selves is always lost. But what about the life I put aside? The Crown is back for a sixth and final series today, with all the usual outrage, anticipation and excitement surrounding it. We've had seven years of this, Royal drama dredged from history and splashed with cash on the screen. It's taken us through the Queen's life and times and the national events around her. But has it overdone it on the sometimes very liberal use of creative licence? In an open letter to the Sunday Times, Oscar-winning actress Dame Judi Dench calling on Netflix to place a disclaimer on the series. Dench, who describes herself as a great believer of artistic freedom, calling the series cruelly unjust. Of course, there is an act of the imagination. And I think that there's a covenant of trust with an audience where they think I'm watching something and I'm, I think people know. But too often I get shocked where people say, oh, but when that happened, I go, well, no, actually, I, I had to imagine that. Now it's coming to an end. What's the damage? Has it given us an extra insight into the monarchy, or just a false impression? And for the royals themselves, having to watch Britain's finest lovies drag about in their clothes and cosplay their trauma, is it a net gain or loss? You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, what have we learned from the crown? My name's Andrew Billen. I'm a feature writer on The Times. For 10 years, I was a Times television critic. And we're talking because we are hotly anticipating the final season of The Crown. Season six, is it? Yeah. And what is it going to be in this series? Where does it end? Well, from the trailer, it's Diana, 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 <laughs> Diana all the way. don't really understand how I ended up here. Dashing around and losing sight of myself in the process. You know, I think that's been the story of my whole life. This is the season that takes us to the death in uh, 1997 of Princess Diana, which is going to be a very bleak end to the crown unless they find some sort of silver lining to this cloud. Mm. And you know, if you think of the crown as a superior soap opera, this is the biggest stunt that a soap can pull. You kill off your star or your leading lady or, yeah. or your biggest supporting actress. And that's fine. But of course, Diana, Princess of Wales, was a 36-year-old mother who really did lose her life tragically and, and mm. left two bereaved children. You say this is like a soap opera. It almost feels like The Crown has been going on longer than Coronation Street and EastEnders. Um, <laughs> but it was only 2016 and you reviewed the first series. I mean, if you think back, what did you make of it then? Well, I saw the first two episodes in a viewing theatre in Soho. And those things, you see a show on, on the big screen with great sound and so on. 
but I was completely blown away by it. I gave it five stars, and I thought it was all actually. I thought it was almost dangerously good. <laughs> Why? Well, the reason I said that and I, and I wrote it was that I thought this could actually be the end for the BBC drama department, because if you recall, that first episode had.、Um, The terminally ill king, George VI,、uh, coughing up blood into the loo. He had him reciting a limerick that had the c word in it, and I don't mean the cancer word either. And the script by Peter Morgan, who's the showrunner, was so sharp and witty, and yet also melancholic. It brought me back to the days of Alan Bennett writing plays for Today、mm. for the BBC in the seventies and eighties, and I thought this is all the elements of a Prestige, clever, intelligent, sophisticated BBC production of old, but with the production values of Hollywood. Yeah, and I couldn't see how traditional British television could compete with that because it certainly didn't have the budget of a BBC play for today. I mean, it was. <laughs> did they ever confirm how much that they were putting into it? Because it was always millions and millions. You know, with the TV budgets on the whole. Producers and networks are quite happy for the press to go merry and say this is the most expensive television ever. I think if you asked Peter Morgan, who runs it, he would say yes, it costs millions and millions of pounds. But then, every drama on television costs about five million an hour these days.、Mm. This was the start of it in a way. This was British television, but with、um, an American Los Angeles sort of budget, and it did cause a lot of cost inflation. For British-made shows, because the production values were、yeah. so high. But again, thinking about that first series, which you so enjoyed because of the sparkling writing and also how much money you could see on screen, how luscious it was. What was it about the actual story that it was telling that you think made it so compelling? Because it was it was basically the early years of the Queen's reign. Yes, that series was the beginning of her reign and the death of her beloved father. So there was a melancholy about. It was quite clever the melancholy that Peter Morgan played on, because we think of the Queen's coronation as being a, a jubilant time, but it, there was a tragic premature death at the beginning of the of the season. Dearest Lilibet, I know how you loved your papa, my son, and I know you will be as devastated as I am by this loss. But you must put those sentiments to one side now, for duty calls. And then there were sacrifices that、uh, the Queen Elizabeth, a, a very young woman, was being asked to make. And while you mourn your father, you must also mourn someone else, Elizabeth Mountbatten, for she has now been replaced by another person, Elizabeth. Regina. The two Elizabeths will frequently be in conflict with one another. The fact is, the crown must win. Must always win. So immediately we saw this conflict being set up. Between the institution that we have been brought up in this country to think of as good and noble, and、uh, what, what being British is all about, and what it actually does to the individuals within it. 
And was that different to how we'd seen the Queen and other senior royals portrayed on screen in the past? Because there have been many TV and film shows in which people have played the Queen, but had they played her in this internal emotional way? From my recollection, what we usually see of the Queen is the middle-aged Queen, even the elderly Queen, the canny Queen. And you see an episode, a slice of her life telling a particular story. Alan Bennett did a play about Anthony Blunt, who was mm. the keeper of the, the royal pictures, but also <laughs> a Soviet spy. But that's like an hour or two hours in her life. Never before had they attempted, almost year by year, to go through her life and, and really put her under the dramatist's scrutiny. Okay, she's always been under the scrutiny of the press, mm. uh, and the more so as the press got freer in what it could say about the royal family. But I don't think that any dramatist had really got it drilled into it in the way that Morgan did on The Crown. Mm. Let's cycle forward slightly, because three years after you wrote that first review about that first series, you wrote another piece of The Times, I think it was ahead of the third season of the show, where you said that the crown was entering its danger zone. Why its danger zone? Well, my theory was that even for somebody who's been around for quite a long time, like me, the events of the 1950s were pretty far distant. I've heard about them, but I didn't live through them. Hmm. But as you get into the, into the 70s and 80s, if you're in your 50s or your 60s, well, you actually remember uh, Ted Heath and Harold Wilson. And therefore, it's much more easy to pick up uh, inaccuracies, things that Peter Morgan has got wrong. And I went down to it being filmed in one of those episodes, uh, uh, series three episodes, and I was shown around the wardrobe department and the hairdressing department, mm. and they showed me great books of photographs of Philip and the Queen of, of that period. The attention to detail from those departments was incredible. But when the story itself jars with your memory of it, mm. then you're kind of taken out of the moment as a viewer and uh, the drama doesn't work so well. Jars in what way? Well, what were some of the inaccuracies or lapses that you remember? <laughs> that was a very obvious one, was that in, I think in season three, we started seeing the Queen and Philip having their, having their breakfast over breakfast television mm. in the 1960s and the 1970s where there was no breakfast television <laughs> in the 1960s and 1970s. I doubt if she would even have watched it if, if there had been. But that's a sort of digital wristwatch left on a, on a gladiator's wrist in, in the gladiator movie kind of lapse, isn't it? Were there other lapses which were a bit more concerning in, in terms of the licence it was taking? Well, there were. There was an episode I found, it was in slightly dubious taste. It revolved around a, a huge... BBC ITV documentary called The Royal Family, I think, mm. that was shown in 69, I think. And they showed a review, a review from The Guardian, really writing a terrible review of this, saying how awful it made The Royal Family look. So I looked it up and I found the review and it wasn't by who they... In fact, the journalist they named never existed. And I found there was a review and it was a very kind review by The Guardian of this series. But it was necessary for the plot because from that Prince Philip then decided that the Guardian, that journalist, should have an interview with his eccentric uh, old mother, Princess Alice, who was dying, really, in, holed up in, in, in Buckingham Palace. And I thought, wow, an interview with, with Philip's eccentric 
uh, mother, that would be extraordinary. Everyone thought I was a slow child. Slow? In which sense? Walking? No, dear. <coughs> slow in here. Right. I was born deaf. Oh, I'm sorry. But otherwise perfectly normal. Well, I thought so. But obviously others didn't, because then I was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And sent to an asylum. A mental asylum? Yes. And I looked it up again. Didn't exist. But is that you, the the wily hack, being annoyed by this? Do you think it actually affected the the experience of the viewer? Did it start to affect the quality of the drama? I mean, tidying up history is what playwrights have always done. You change it a bit, you reorder it a bit until it makes the sense you want to make out of it. But by that stage, I was no longer so sure that the Crown was trying to get to a truth about things. Mm. I thought it was trying to make drama. Coming up, the series enters the real danger zone as Princess Diana enters the frame. That's just in a moment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Andrew, we were talking about how The Crown portrays some of the dramatic events of the life of the royal family and how it might be erring a little bit more towards dramatic pleasures rather than historical accuracies. We even had the government weighing in on this, unbelievably. Well, yes, the, the current Deputy Prime Minister, Oliver Dowden, uh, when he was Culture Secretary in 2020, said each episode should make it clear it was a work of fiction. And he said, without this, I fear a generation of viewers who did not live through these events may mistake fiction for fact. And my older daughter, who's 16 now, was watching uh, uh, Netflix's The Crown 
as if it were history, I think. And actually, that health warning that Oliver Dowden called for did come around Series 5, I think. So what was happening in Series 5 that Netflix finally felt the need to add this disclaimer? When that came along, there really was a problem with one of the plot lines, which was that Prince Charles, you know, the man who was to be king but looked like he never would be king, was portrayed as getting very impatient, thought the monarchy needed to be modernised, and thought that he should be king. The Prime Minister, Your Royal Highness. Prime Minister. Your Royal Highness. So kind of you to come. Sir. Uh, before we begin, I wonder, did your office let anyone at Buckingham Palace know that we were meeting? I don't believe so, sir. Probably for the best. And there's an episode where he approaches the Prime Minister of the day, John Major, to sort of suggest it might be a good idea maybe if the Prime Minister Major suggested to the Queen that it, her time was up and it was time to, to usher in her son. For almost 60 years, my great-great-grandfather, Edward VII, was kept waiting in the wings. It was said that Queen Victoria had no confidence in him, thought him dangerous, free-thinking. He longed to be given responsibilities, but his mother refused, even forbade him from seeing state papers. And yet when his time came, he proved his doubters wrong and his dynamism, his intellect, his popular appeal made his reign a triumph. What are you saying, sir? I'm saying, what a pity it was. What a waste. To me, that looked more like Channel 4's The Windsors in a sitcom yeah. than history. There was an outcry about it. John Major didn't like it. Dame Judi Dench, who was said to be close to King Charles, uh, wrote to the Times saying Netflix seemed willing to blur the lines between historical accuracy and crude sensationalism. So then they did, Netflix added a disclaimer saying the crime was a fictional dramatisation that was inspired by real-life events. That scene between the then Prince Charles and John Major was in the first episode of Series 5. And for the first time, the trailer for Season 5 had in its description, as you say, quote, inspired by real events, this fictional dramatisation tells the story of Queen Elizabeth II. Because... Now there's some concern that people are sort of getting their history lessons from the Crown, which I guess can be quite problematic. And I guess particularly problematic when we get to the life and times of Diana, because that's still so hotly contested. How does she enter in the series? By the time Diana comes in, we know the backstory that Charles was in love with Camilla, but their relation couldn't work. Um, Camilla married somebody else. And then Lord Mountbatten was very keen on Charles marrying a, a young sort of society virgin. And by then we kind of knew that this poor girl was going to fall for this plot, which wasn't really of Charles's making. It was, it was being sort of decided over his head. So she comes in as a coquettish young naive whom uh, Charles is attracted to, but doesn't feel any profound uh, feelings for. So the crown, I think, pretty much has aligned itself. We'll see what happens in this season, but has pretty much aligned itself with the Diana point of view mm. that there were 
three of us in this marriage and it was rather crowded, which is what she'd said in that Panorama interview. And how is that also supported by the portrayal of our now Queen Camilla, then Camilla Parker Bowles? Because it's Emerald Fennell who who played her at least in, in that sort of when yeah. she first enters in, in the series, Camilla. And she plays a good part, but sort of quite immediately on TikTok and the rest, became a sort of villain meme where people were posting some of the spicier clips. I mean, the, the thing about Camilla and Charles is that it seems a long time ago, doesn't it, Diana, the three in the marriage uh, period. So the, the royal family is slightly relying on us being oblivious or forgetful or for buying into the new narrative, which is that Charles finally got together with a woman he really loved. But um, if you see this rather outre figure, <laughs> in a slight, slightly raunchy um, woman who, who likes sex in her younger years and uh, Charles being sexually obsessed by her, I can see why some people would think, mm, and she's our queen now? yes. And also, is it aside from how it's portrayed, it's just awkward to have some of these things churned up again when they might have been forgotten to history. I mean, there's a whole generation of people who didn't know what tampon gate was, who now do because it was in the drama. That was an irresistible episode for Peter Morgan, I'm, I'm sure. And this has always been the problem with The Crown. It produces kings and queens who have a mythic sort of symbolic weight in our culture who are actually played by real people who, who like, like the rest of us, make mistakes and, and have sex and do the wrong thing. Yeah. For those of you who haven't seen the series or haven't, weren't alive at the time, Tampon Gate was an excruciatingly embarrassing moment from Charles when some tapes were leaked of him basically talking dirty to, to Camilla while he was still married to Diana and uh, imagining himself, let's say, in a very intimate position within Camilla. Delicately done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked a lot about the dramatic licence it takes and some of the inaccuracies, I guess, that can always come from, from making a TV drama out of anything, purposeful or, or otherwise. But has it not served as a useful insight into British history? It's almost like a drama series of the story of the United Kingdom, from the early 50s onwards, isn't it? I mean, there's so much that I didn't really know about in terms of, you know, the London smogs and, and you know, relationships with the Queen and certain prime ministers. It is a kind of useful history lesson. No, I completely agree. And I think, weirdly enough, some of the most successful in episodes have been the ones where the Queen has actually not been to the fore. It's not all about tiaras and, and crowns. It reanimated uh, Howard Wilson. And now he was the Labour Prime Minister for a long lot of the 60s. He came back in the 70s, but he was a massive politician. And he was one of the Queen's favourite premiers, they say. We can't be everything to everyone and still be true to ourselves. We do what we have to do as leaders. That's our job. Our job is to calm more crises than we create. That's our job, and you do it very well indeed. Prime Minister. Your Majesty. And that's significant because Keir Starmer, whenever he's asked who was your favourite Labour Prime Minister, he always says Harold Wilson. But, I mean, 
people have forgotten about Harold Wilson, but now mm. they can now they can see him. But is it slightly troubling that people might be having a lesson on things which might be, as discussed, slightly inaccurate, take dramatic licence, mischaracterise events or people? Isn't it better that people have a, a basic understanding from fact, not fiction? Yes, assuming that millions of people are going to sit down, open a book on the history of the royal family, they're probably not. Mm. These, these are very potent events, and I can see they're completely irresistible to a certain sort of screenwriter or, or playwright. I think people my age find inaccuracies jarring, and it's probably our responsibility to tell our children or, or our younger friends, uh, but you know, don't trust everything you watch on The Crown. Yeah. Would you chalk The Crown up as a, as a net gain or, or net loss for, for the royal family? It's interesting. It's, it certainly has, as Andrew Marr wrote in The Sunday Times, helped us remember the monarchy. But the intense dramas of the royals in the last 30 years have, have actually created an, an audience for the crown. We've always been obsessed as a nation by the royal family, and the crown has been, been a catalyst. In a way, it's been a plus. It's humanised the kings and the queens, you know, the princes. It's made us realise that they are just underneath all the ermine, just ordinary, mm. ordinary people in a family which, like all families, has conflicts. I think the massive negative, and maybe this applies even more around the world than in Britain, is that it has portrayed what I think many people assumed was a benign and dignified constitutional monarchy as actually a very cruel institution and especially cruel to its own members. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, feature writer for The Times, Andrew Billen. If you're a subscriber, you can read all of Andrew's writing and his crown reviews going through the ages at thetimes.co.uk. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, the executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Hannah Varrell. If you leave us a nice review wherever you're listening to this, that would be very kind of you. And it would also help other people find us. Also, if you have a suggestion for anything you think we should be covering, an idea, an angle, let us know. Our email is storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Goodbye.